welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And we have a special guest with us. We're not <laughs> alone in the room. So we are joined today by Cece, and she is the host of Something Red podcast on the Bloody Good Horror Network. Yes. And she also designs all the covers for Grimm Magazine, which is a feminist, queer, inclusive magazine that I write for, she writes for, but she's an amazingly talented artist. So I'm very excited, Cece. Thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me. That was a very flattering introduction, so I appreciate that as well. So we are talking about Ghost World today. We sure are. We're in the vein of comics and coming of age, and it should really be my wheelhouse, but I feel kind of meh about the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, there's a pervasive <laughs> feeling of meh around yeah. this particular title, and I think we're going to get into it, but before we do, let's begin with a round of homework. Mm-hmm. And Cece, I'm not going to make you go first, because <laughs> okay, as we talked you. about <laughs> offline, we threw this at you, so you can decide if you want to participate. I'm going to ask Brenna to share first. Perfect. So I'm going to share some news that came across my Twitter feed this week, primarily from Joe Knowles, who is a YA writer, YA and middle grade writer. Maybe not her most famous, but definitely her book that has been maybe the most controversial was called Lessons from a Dead Girl. Ooh, that title. I know, right? But she also wrote books uh, like Where the Heart Is, Still a Work in Progress, Read Between the Lines. So she's got a pretty big body of work behind her. Oh, is Where the Heart Is, is that a Natalie Portman, Ashley Judd movie adaptation? I have no idea, Joe. Is it a pregnant girl in a Walmart? <laughs> I mean, that is a movie. I don't know if that's, I mean, it is also based on a book, but I'm not sure if that's the same book. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure. I, the, my, the book that Joe Knowles that I know is this Lessons from a Dead Girl, so. Okay, ignore my question, continue on. (laughs) No, that's fine. It probably, I should have had an answer to it. It's very on brand for the show, if true. Anyway, so Joe Knowles was posting on Twitter this week because she was reading news and she realized that this principal from this high school in Kentucky who has fought hard to ban her book Lessons from a Dead Girl, but has also fought hard to ban Speak by ah. yeah, by Lori Halls Anderson and uh, some books by other authors, Neil Schusterman among them. Anyway, so this principal who has banned all of these books and often he, what he doesn't like is homosexual or other inappropriate content tends to be what he mm-hmm. goes after, but also so really any kind of sexual content like he didn't like this is the principal who I believe this is the man who thought that speak was pornographic. Um, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and Hal Sanderson's uh. response was brilliant. She was like, if you believe that a book about a 14 year old being raped is pornographic, there is something very wrong with you. Oh, for sure. Anyway, turns out <laughs> accurate because this principal was just arrested on child pornography <gasps> charges. What? Yeah. Oh my gosh. And Joe Knowles posted it because she she was sort of starting a conversation about like the consequences for people's careers that this kind of thing has. You know, we have mm-hmm. this like popular narrative that like if your book gets banned, it's good because you get good publicity and stuff out right. of it. But the bad notoriety equals good book sales. Yeah, and I think maybe for some authors that has been true in the past, but I think for the most part, it's just a really emotionally daunting experience and Joe Knowles was really new a new writer at the time that Lessons from a Dead Girl went through that process and she has talked before about how sort of feeling like your text is that profoundly misunderstood is a really traumatic experience for a a new author so 
anyway, it sparked this conversation on Twitter that I wanted to bring up today because it's something that, Joe, that you and I have talked about in the past, which is the importance of these kinds of books for giving teens and young adults the language to talk about traumatic experience, mm-hmm. right? I mean, part, that's partly why these books are so important is that you take an experience that no one talks about and you give kids the language to say, oh, actually, this happened to me. Right. So part of the conversation that was unspooling on Twitter involved Lori Hulse Anderson, and she was talking about how we should look really hard at people who spend careers in the service of students trying to ban this kind of content Mm -hmm. because what is the underlying motive for not wanting kids to have the vocabulary that they need to come to their own defense in traumatic situations and like obviously this is a very dramatic case of that being the case but i think too when we think about the way religion operates to control young people or when we think about like controlling parents and what their motivation is like Part of what came across this conversation among so many YA authors on Twitter this week was this idea that, like, it's not about, oh, kids have to have access to, like, sex scenes in books. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's not about sex education. No, it's about kids have to have access to, like, the language to talk about those kind of things. And for better or for worse, most of us acquire our language for communicating with the world through stories, right? Mm -hmm. And so making sure that kids have stories from diverse experiences and about the traumas that they will go through in life is really valuable. And so it's just interesting to think about like this guy who spent most of his career trying to prevent kids from being able to have those conversations about their lives. It was actually allegedly anyway, enacting just horrifying traumas on young people. So it's a downer. Joe was like, you're really going to bring that up. (laughs) But, (laughs) But I think it speaks to the larger the larger mandate of this show, well, we have a few, but one of them is definitely to talk about why these books matter in the first place. Like, mm-hmm. why are we still talking about something like Shout, or sorry, we just talked about Shout a couple weeks ago. Why are we still talking <laughs> about Speak so many years after it was first published? Like, mm-hmm. why are these books still so important? To me, this just made it all really concrete in a horrible way. Anyway, that's Joe Knowles' Twitter feed. If you want to take a look at it, Joe, I'll send you the link so you can put it in the notes. Sounds good. Cece, do you have anything that you want to contribute to homework session? Um, I was able to to pull up a little bit of a recommendation. Oh, excellent. We love that. Yes. We love a recommendation. <laughs> Since we did read Ghost World in its, you know, graphic novel form, I just, well, actually, I guess it was about a year or two ago, I covered Paper Girls on the Something Red <gasps> podcast. Yeah. <Yes>. And <laughs> I really wanted to bring um, that up because I think that that's also, you know, they're in the same vein. Like, it's it's a very good um, story of, you know, these these um, four 12-year-old girls who are newspaper delivery girls, and they kind of go through this, this crazy happening on Halloween, or I guess the night of Halloween and it talks about a lot of the growing up and a lot of the like trying to figure out how to be an adult and figure out yourself and deal with these adult situations while still being a child so I definitely wanted to give that a recommendation because it's a great series and the artwork is awesome the story is awesome the artwork yeah the the girls are just the, the characters are great and the characters are very, you know, they're these kind of bad girl type, you know, I mean, they're still your best friends, but they want to keep you on edge. So I liked that, <laughs> that description, excuse me, a little better than <laughs> what we'll talk about in Ghost World, I guess. <laughs> Fair. Right. 
<laughs> a different kind of bad girl. Yes, exactly. Also, the covers from the trade paper editions are just some of the most strikingly beautiful. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. I love that's them. That's literally what brought me in. Yeah, that's me a too. Brian yeah. Vaughn. <laughs> that one's Brian K. Vaughn, sure right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I was obviously interested just based on his writing because I'm such a huge fan of Saga. Mm-hmm. But honestly, it was on my radar. But then when I saw the cover art, yeah. that's what ended oh, up yeah. solidifying the deal it for me. It has like this gorgeous matte texture. It's just really yeah. nice to like pet. It is very true. And that's something like, <laughs> I'm glad that you like that because I also noticed it. And I was like, I just, like, there's just so much about this that's really intriguing. And I do appreciate that the artwork is consistently that awesome and that that's striking throughout. Because, you know, sometimes like the covers, yeah, you can tell that, like yeah. that's yeah. where the effort is put in and then they get a little looser. But the whole comic is very, very awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same artist who does the covers and the actual illustrations, isn't it? Uh, yes. Okay. And I think his name is Cliff something. And then Matt Wilson does the coloring. Um, it is Cliff Chang and Matt Wilson. And then Jared K. Fletcher, I think, is also involved with the art. Nice. Mm-hmm. I love how much of a production, and I say that in a good way, putting together a comic is. It's such a collaborative effort. Oh, for sure. Yep. Okay, well, before we get into Ghost World, I'll quickly do my bit of homework, which is, we'll see if Brenna notices. So I have been reading The Virtue of Sin by Shannon Shuren. Brenna, does that mean anything to you? It does not. Oh, I don't like this. I'm so unsettled. (laughs) (laughs) So you brought this up as one of your forecast books (laughs) for the third quarter. Oh my God, my life is out of control. I have no memory of this conversation. Go on. This was admittedly quite a while ago. So one of the reasons that this title caught our eye is that it's a dystopian YA text about a girl who is living in what is never defined as, but is quite obviously a religious cult in the desert. Oh, damn. Yes, I remember now. So the whole book is oriented around a wedding ceremony. That's what kicks off the book. So she is one of five or six girls who are around 16 years old and the person who runs this community, Daniel, a self-proclaimed prophet who has gathered this group of families out in the Nevada desert because he has convinced these people that the world is going to end and they need to repent and they need to live by his doctrine. He has also decreed that women should get married at 16 they have no choice in the man that they will marry these men go into a cave and they just proclaim the name of the girl that they're going to marry as dictated by the dreams from god that they have received aka daniel Uh (laughs) so the book opens with our main character and she believes that she's going to get married to this boy that she has a connection with even though she's not supposed to know because the boys and the girls are not meant to interact in any way so that the women remain pure there's a huge amount of religious hypocrisy and hysteria that is the foundation of this particular text but things go horribly wrong when the outsider boy as in the boy of a family who has only recently joined their cult he ends up calling her instead of the boy that she thought was going to call her. And her entire life just falls apart because all of a sudden she's married to a man that she doesn't know, that she doesn't entirely believe believes in the values of this community. And it really starts her to start nitpicking and 
undermining everything that she's been told that her family believes that everyone else in this community has just you know willingly adopted they've drunk this kool-aid and she starts to realize no this guy's full of bs this community is full of bs and she starts to rebel in simple ways and it becomes increasingly more dangerous for her because of course Mm -hmm. there's nowhere for her to go she doesn't know anything about the outside world because she's never lived outside of this community I'm not going to say anything more than that. It's, I always say this, it's very easy to read. It's very accessible. Like the writing is good. I enjoy Shannon Shuren's writing style. My sort of minor nitpicky complaint is if you're kind of wise to what's happening, you'll figure things out very quickly. And it takes the characters quite a bit longer to process. That's like your kryptonite, Joe. That drives you crazy. (laughs) It's not horrible, but I think maybe a slightly tighter edit on the book would have been helpful just to get things moving along a little bit more. Like the book takes place chronologically, like it's this day and then the next day and then the next day. So there's times where I kind of wish that she would hurry along a little bit more. Joe, but Joe, are you saying why? you read a YA book that needed a tighter editorial hand? <laughs> why I never, I never. We're not talking Wattpad relationship here. <laughs> I'm going to write a ballad called Where Have All the Editors Gone? And I'm going to dedicate it to all of YA. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But all that to say, it's a quite enjoyable book. And if you're looking for something that is written, it's an inherently feminist and progressive point of view, despite the fact that this girl wouldn't even know what those terms are because she doesn't have that kind of language. And it's funny, Brenna, as you were talking about the real life events about censorship Mm. and what adults don't want teenagers to know, even just this idea that she has no idea what marriage even entails because the adults don't talk about that. So she only knows from the nonverbal cues of what she has pulled from her own parents' relationship. And then she starts to question, okay, well... I don't even think that their relationship is real because, of course, her parents went through this same process. So it's really good at subtly unpacking a lot about romance and gender and relationships. So if people are interested in that with a healthy dose of dystopia, then I would recommend it. So once again, that's The Virtue of Sin by Shannon Shuren. Nice. I'm glad you read it. I really was looking forward to it. And then you started describing it. And I was like, oh, yeah. You know what? Yeah. You know what it is? It's on my hold list at my old library. Oh, uh, yeah. You got to move that over. I know, I really do. I haven't learned how to use the hold list at the new library yet. My life is completely, like, it's just everywhere. I can't. That is a sign of how how discombobulated your life is right now. It really is. Like, I mean, <laughs> I don't want to read too much into what's going on between me and the library. But, like, no, it's true. It's a problem. <laughs> like, today, Joe, I went to the library and I didn't get any books out. Like, not one. What? I know. Okay. I know. We're, we're going to have to talk about this <laughs> offline. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I guess we're going to turn and talk about Ghost World. Yes. Brenna, what is Ghost World? <sighs> I, feel, I feel like... So, Cece, I've taken a lot of hits in the last few weeks about my crappy plot summaries. <laughs> wow. No one has accused you of Ooh, crappy plot right. summaries. So, two weeks ago, Joe let me know that my plot summaries are really bad. And so... <laughs> Super bad. So bad I had to take over. <laughs> wow. So, I'm feeling a little attacked right now. And so, now you throw me a book that really has no discernible plot uh, that exactly. I have to know summarize. <laughs> It's fine. So Ghost World is, uh, it's comic by, and I looked up the pronunciation and I think I'm going to go with, hang on, wait for it. I'm going to go with Klaus. 
okay. based on the phonetic alphabet. Okay, so Daniel Klaus. <laughs> and it's actually, and I think this might be part of my problem with it, it's not the full run. It was serialized within another comic, so it was like individual chapters published within another comic. And I think sometimes it suffers from that sort of episodic feel we've talked about in other texts before. Yes, very much mm-hmm. so. Yeah, so it was serialized within a larger comic book series called 8-Ball, but it was published in book form for the first time in 1997. And so the version that we're looking at is just the collected Ghost World from 1997. Yes. Mm-hmm. It was a huge success, by the way, both commercially and in terms of critical success and also just like as a cult favorite. So it's interesting because a lot of the reviews I read online as I was prepping for today, contemporary reviews at the time compared it to... American Splendor? No, Salinger's Catcher in the Rye was the one I read a bunch of comparisons to, which fits really well for me because these are two texts that a lot of people find like seminal to their youth. And I don't don't get it at all. I am so with you there. (laughs) Like these texts that are like so important to people that I'm just like, I can't connect to a single thing about it, but it's fine. Okay, so synopsis. Ghost World takes place in, I don't think it's ever named, but it's sort of a generic suburban town. Shopping malls, fast food restaurants, lots of urban sprawl, lots of wandering pavement happening. And we have two main characters. And the reason why the space is important is because they spend most of their time walking around the space and making fun of it. Yes. (laughs) Our protagonists are Enid Coleslaw and Rebecca Doppelmeyer. And they're sort of cynical, obviously whip-smart bored, senseless, archetypical 1990s teenagers. Yes. They've recently graduated from high school, and I'm going to say they have no plans for the future. No, they are a little (laughs) aimless. (laughs) But that's what becomes sort of the central tension, is that Enid is starting to look towards the future, somewhat pressured by her father, but also somewhat she kind of wants there to be something else, something beyond this town. And Becky is very happy to get an apartment, well, happy is a strong word, but she's sort of she's sort of she's resigned content. to getting an apartment, getting a job in this town, and this being her life. So at the beginning, they seem like they're on the same page. They're both eschewing college. And as the text progresses, you discover that maybe Enid is going to go do something else. And the last person to find out about it is Becky. Which is what friends are for. Yeah, of course. So their friendship is close, but this tension is kind of building throughout the text. And uh, they also have this friend named Josh, who... Well, friend is a stretch. They sort of torture this boy named Josh. But then he also becomes the central pivot in a love triangle that also emerges. Love is too strong. A sex triangle that emerges (laughs) around him. There's a bunch of weird other subplots that mostly involve the two girls just messing with people. And I don't even know how much of those we want to go into because some of them translate to the film and some of them don't. So maybe I'll leave that open-ended and we can come back to the ones that are most interesting, interesting to us. Sure. But anyway, at the end of the story, Enid gets on a bus and leaves town, and Becky doesn't, and that's that. Hmm? Yeah. I, I feel that feel like that was very successful See? and very succinct. Thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hooray. A comic with no plot. That was great, Brenna. You're not my favorite person anymore. The synopsis was great. We can get into whether or not the actual comic we thought was great. Well, yeah. Okay, so... <laughs> We talked about this offline. CC. unfortunately, this was not your first pick when no, I asked okay. you to come and guest <laughs> on the podcast. What was your first pick? I'm dying to know. Oh, it was Paranorman. Oh, okay. Yeah. But that's okay. 
which, if people don't know, is not actually a book that we covered. It was a offshoot that we did with my other podcast mm-hmm. called Horror Queers. So, of course, that was actually one that Brenna was guest starring oh, in. Oh, so that's okay. I couldn't, yeah, I I couldn't then one. be like, that's oh, right. Cece also covered <laughs> No, I totally understand. So I did wonder then, when you ended up agreeing to come onto Ghost World, I wondered if you had had a previous relationship with it. Yes. Well, I guess as I kind of mentioned before we started recording, I definitely thought I had a relationship with this. And (laughs) once I revisited, I was very mistaken. So I definitely did not read the comic until recently for the show. I had rented the movie in my, I would say, preteens. Yeah, I'm trying to think how old I was. But We'll say preteens, maybe right at despondent teenager years. But, you know, I I was a typical teenager with some attitude issues. So thinking back, I remember that I really wanted to like this movie. And I remember that it kind of went over my head at the time. So when I saw this as an option, I was like, oh, well, I remember like seeing that movie and wanting to like it. So I'll give it another shot. Um, That is not the case now. Uh, (laughs) I feel like I still have an attitude problem. So I was like, well, I can still like, you know, I'm cool. I'm hip. I'm not that old. I can still connect with the youth. Uh, If this is connecting (laughs) with the youth. No, I cannot. I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, this is something that I'm wondering because I feel like all three of us had difficulty connecting Mm -hmm. to this material. And I did wonder if it has something to do with not just the timing of when this is set, because I do think that that influences the kinds of teenagers that we're dealing with, but also if it's just we didn't have that emotional connection to it, like it's not a seminal piece from our youth, Mm -hmm. Brenna, as you suggested. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that is something that is maybe required to connect to this material. Yeah, it's interesting because... I can tend to be a little bit standoffish about women's coming-of-age stories written by men. That Mm -hmm. tends to be like, "Mm, my back's already a little bit up. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Which is fair, because men do it a lot. And I've been reading this ish my whole life. So I was like, "Mm." But I also think Enid Coleslaw is definitely an anagram for Daniel Klaus. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a lot about Daniel Klaus. And I I wonder if a lot of the critical acclaim is less people finding it to be a seminal text for their own coming of age and more people of Klaus's generation mm-hmm. latching onto it as something that they felt emblematic of a particular experience of teenagehood, like separate from the mm-hmm. pop culture yes. references that pervade the text. I think the pop culture references make you think the book is going to be like very 90s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And instead it's... I mean, it didn't feel like it's person. me. It's an older person's representation of their memories of youth, yes. I think. No, I, I think you're 100% correct because it definitely feels like a early 80s like retelling yes. of the 90s. Because, I mean, I, I grew up, the majority of my teens were late 90s, early 2000s. So, like, yeah, I realize I'm a little young for, like, having had this type of understanding, but it wouldn't have been that far away. Mm-hmm. And it's just, there's nothing to connect, like connect for me at all. So I, I think that's a really great description of it. Yeah, I was 14 in 1997. So I feel like oh, yeah. this experience of teenageness should not feel so distant to me as it does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
definitely. And I think that too, if you think about, if you think about the crowd that is evaluating Klaus's comics at the time, indie comics of the '90s are very insular. That's a very insular crowd, right? Like comics yes. had not had the kind of this mainstream. This is before they had broken out. Yeah, hugely. So I think that. Yeah, we're looking at a group of people sort of sitting around being like, yep, this is totally what the youths are up to. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not to be crass, but are you talking about an older white gentleman masturbation <laughs> circle? Sure am. I sure am. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so I think, I think for me that was part of the distance. And I also just think like... I suspect I would have enjoyed this had I read it as a 14-year-old. I was not the kind of teenager who messed with people, but I was the kind of teenager who definitely aspired to messing with people. Yes. Um, (laughs) But as an adult reading it, I longed for consequence of any sort. I felt that way in the film, too. At the end of the movie, I was just so wildly unsatisfied by how everything wrapped up. And I, I wonder if part of it is like... I don't know, there's a, um, there's a consequencelessness and an effortlessness to this teen experience that didn't mm-hmm. bring particularly truthful to me. No, I mean, I don't know that this is meant to even approach any kind of authenticity mm-hmm. about capturing a lived, real experience mm-hmm. for teenagers. It seems more like a wry commentary mm-hmm. on the kind of affectlessness that teenagers can sometimes have which then if you couple it with this idea that it's nostalgic and rose-colored glasses from an older gentleman, Mm -hmm. it has that... I think the thing that drove me a little bit bonkers about both these texts was this idea of "Mm, teenagers, you know, they're they're mean. (laughs) (laughs) They don't like people. Why are they so confrontational? But... I don't want to be unfair to Klaus because I do think that there is some sharp writing in here. There's some very careful observations about the way society works. Mm -hmm. He's clearly not attempting to be narrative about this. Like the whole thing feels so aimless, which as someone who loves plot, (laughs) it did not endear itself to me Mm -hmm. as a comic. But I don't know. There is really something that's very old man points at cloud and yells <laughs> teenagers these days yes. about this comic that ugh, just kind of turned me off well and i think you know i can see the appeal to an extent especially in how the emphasis on which like the despondency and and the like fighting to just like have like brenna said any consequences or any type of reaction for these teenagers you know i mean that's them that's them fighting to find themselves Mm -hmm. and the plot or lack thereof mirroring that feeling like you know i i i can kind of remember feeling like okay i I know what i'm supposed to be doing but is that really what i want to be doing and will i ever know if this is what i want to be doing so like i understand that meandering feeling of listlessness and then Mm -hmm. also do you ever really figure that out? And I think that, you know, the commentary of the younger generation and then making fun of the older generation for kind of doing the same things they're doing. Right. I can appreciate it. And like you said, there is some very sharp writing, but I think it's very obvious that this isn't for me in my current (laughs) state. (laughs) Yeah, I felt the same way. You know, there's that whole scene where Klaus writes himself in. We used to have author cameo on our bingo card from last season. And <laughs> I was a like, good one. cool, we never have author cameo in the book version. That's exciting. This is true. But that to me is emblematic of how 
the whole book is serving like a larger project that Klaus is interested in. Mm-hmm. And it's not and these it's two not girls. the two girls. Right. And it's not coming of age. And so it's interesting that this has been heralded as such a significant YA text because I don't think that's what Klaus is particularly interested in, like for better or for worse. I think if you connect with it on the level of satire, I think there are elements that it does really well. Mm-hmm. Although it's always interesting to read like, angry 90s satire from like the guy who literally designed coke cans for when coke tried to make their like gen x soda is that Klaus? that's Klaus. yeah he designed he designed the cans for okay cola which was supposed to be the um yeah the gen x coke dear yeah (laughs) can we talk about who was swallowed up by uh the big corporation (laughs) yeah this is what i mean right like and and it's like far be it from me to be like a man can't make a living because like obviously but it is always interesting to me to read and that was 93 94 so that was pre-ghost world so this idea Mm. that like you're making he's working out his issues yeah i think so like i think the 90s i think gen xers in particular were like roll roll hard on themselves about corporate stuff right of course and like you see the same thing happening in like copeland's work as he like ages and realizes like oh yeah no i'm a canadian writer i actually need to work with corporations to ever make a living mm-hmm. there's this tension like to me that's the part of the work that is way more interesting is like the contextual nature around it and how indie comics artists walk this line between like i'm gonna be like this anti-corporate hero but also i design coke cans yeah. but none of that is on the page here and i just i don't know honestly honestly i it was, i found it boring honestly I can't agree with you more. Like, that's 100% how I felt about it. Like, if if he had worked out those issues a little more blatantly or even, you know, subtly for me, I think I would have enjoyed it or at least found it interesting. But I'm with you. Like, it was just, it couldn't hold my attention at all. Yeah. 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 It does feel like the most interesting aspects of this text for me was spent reading other people's reactions yes. <laughs> to it like all mm-hmm. all the work is off the page yeah for sure and i think that's really interesting because i i you know i like art in general that creates a conversation i mean that's usually what it's there for anyway and it's interesting when there's an output of somebody's that obviously rings so strongly for so many people and then Mm -hmm. there's nothing that reflects that in the actual art or in the actual like you know subject matter and I don't know like I I think that that too is a strange artistic choice that you know there's a lot of growing up issues I, I don't know they're they're just not clearly defined there's certain artists and texts of films that really draw the line between Gen X and millennials to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm like, I'm an old millennial. Like, I'm on the top yeah. end of the millennial <laughs> sort of spectrum. But I definitely, like, Klaus to me has always been one of those figures. You know, I remember when uh, when Shia LaBeouf ripped him off with that stupid short film he made, where it was basically like just a remake of Klaus's, uh, I can't remember what the comic was called, Justin something. Anyway, so in 2013, Shia LaBeouf totally ripped off Daniel Klaus. And that was like the last time Daniel Klaus rose to the level of like awareness for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, Shia LaBeouf mentioned me. Yeah. And my Twitter feed, because I'm a comic scholar, so I follow a lot of other comic scholars, most of whom are Gen Xers. And it was like just like this massive outpouring of like, how dare you? He's the greatest genius of our time. And I'm like, whoa, I literally have never connected (laughs) with a single thing this man has created. Like, as I texted to Joe the other day, can totally recognize that it's formally interesting, Mm -hmm. totally Mm -hmm. see what he's doing and, and why it has been considered sort of significant within the indie comics movement. 
but it was just interesting when that happened with Shia LaBeouf to see like all of these people who otherwise like my tastes align with really closely this is where we just we just this is where we separate <laughs> like I just and I wonder if Klaus part of the cost of speaking so deeply to one generation is sometimes that you lose the translation any relevancy to anybody else yeah I think so and I mean you know far be from me to, like I'm never gonna have the level of cultural significance that Klaus does but I just I, I wonder if some of that for all three of us is a generational thing that's happening I really think you're right like I I can see that as being the issue. It seems like a bit of a barrier, but it's odd because we've read other texts that come from different periods. We straight up read the Scarlet Letter. <laughs> I just feel like I've never I've never struggled to connect to the material in quite the way that I did. Like, I'm with you, Cece. This just did not hold my attention. It's 80 pages and I yeah. struggled to get through it. <laughs> I was yeah. like, this is a really long comic. And I'm like, no, wait, it's not. <laughs> it's actually not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I think, and Britta kind of brought it up too, like, you know, you were saying that there's a lot of references to like catch or not references, excuse me, in critiques of this that they compare it to Catcher in the Rye. Yeah. And this is a very dumbed down kind of comparison, but I feel like it's how or how I do feel about going back and reading like Romeo and Juliet as an adult versus as a teenager, <laughs> you yes. know, like at the time it's so encompassing and you're like, oh my gosh, like I can relate to this. Like, yes, I've felt those feelings before. And that's kind of what it feels like now. Like as an adult, I go back and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. Like, yeah. what are these, like, what are these children thinking? Yes. And I mean, I know that, yes, our characters are 18 years old, but I mean, look, I still have a pretty nihilistic view about some things. So like, I don't feel like I'm that far off, but I'm just like, ooh, I hope I wasn't that, I don't know, combative yeah. or something. I definitely think that of all the characters in the book, like I'm Melora. <laughs> so, so part of it was just like, I don't know if I'm too old for it You're the now, perky popular was... classmate who's going out on auditions. Well, I was never popular, but I was definitely like that inability to connect with the nihilism of mm -hmm. other teens was definitely something that I experienced. So I feel some empathy for Melora, as irritating as she clearly is. <laughs> Although I will... No, I'll... wait, I'll save that for when we talk about the film. Well, can we... Talk about the film? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I still have stuff I, I need the two of you to unpack for me here. <laughs> So on one hand, we've talked a lot about our inability to connect to the material, but I do think that we should probably talk at least a little bit about some of the thematic issues and ideas that are going sure. on in this. Mm -hmm. I would also really enjoy hearing about your perspectives on the way that this is rendered visually. Because mm. Cece, you're an artist. Brenna, you're a comic scholar. I feel like there's going to be a bunch of our listeners who are going to say, why is this entire text green? Yeah. <laughs> so I read some stuff about it because my first reaction was, I don't understand why this book is green. Yeah, it seems like an arbitrary artistic choice. So that's my kind of idiot layman perspective going <laughs> into this. So the first thing is that Klaus is definitely adamant that that's pale blue. So there's your first feeling of being just a little bit off because yeah. there's no way this okay. book is blue. <laughs> this book is definitely green. And I think when they were originally published, apparently it was like black and dark blue and then black and light blue and then black and green. And Klaus wrote in an editorial note at the time that he was trying to evoke the notion of walking home like 
Like late at night? Yeah, like twilight, I guess. Yeah. Okay. And what he was trying to evoke was like, you're walking down a suburban street and the only light source are like street lights and then the glow of people's televisions as you walk past their windows. So that's what he was trying to evoke. I don't get that. I mean, I get that once he describes it, I'm like, okay, I can see it. Sure. But there's, to me, there's nothing in the text that anchors you to have that experience with it. Yeah, particularly considering that 90% of this text takes place during the day. Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> I definitely think that that's achieved during, is it in the beginning? Yes, in the beginning when it is nighttime. Mm-hmm. I know that it kind of sets the... For me, it set the the theme of the comic in a way. And I appreciated that, like, yes, like you see them sitting there watching TV and really the first full two pages are Enid walking past a house while someone's watching TV and you can tell that it's night out. And I got that feeling like... <sighs> it comes through. Yeah, it comes through for me. Not, not necessarily as like melancholy, but in that weird, like, it's a transitional feeling for me and Mm. I I do feel like even though the rest of it happens during the day for the most part that that continues throughout the comic for me Hmm. Hmm. I like this idea because I mean to me not to blend the two issues that I just raised Mm -hmm. together but there's obviously a strong consumerism capitalism element Mm -hmm. like a thematic element woven into this so one of the ways that people do that is they dismiss arbitrary forms of popular culture so things like the music that play at the 50s diner and the tv shows that the girls watch and the sassy magazine that enid is so annoyed with becky at having bought in that first issue so there's an interesting intersection in the way that the dismissal of popular forms of culture can relate to the idea of, you know, a somnambulist group of people living in the suburbs that are generic and everyday and kind of falling apart and into disrepair that I think is interesting. I don't know that that's always what this text is about. Yes. I wish that there was more of that. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that I that I struggled with is that it feels like the episodic nature with which it's written is that it just feels like they're having variations of the same interaction, like a mean-spirited interaction with somebody that they mock and dismiss, and then the next day they go and they do that with somebody else at a different location, and it's all just a bit run down and mundane. Mm. And the green does bring out some of that idea, like it's a little sickly, it's a little monotonous. I don't like it, but I can (laughs) see it. I definitely agree that it's as much as I just said that it it does evoke that like transitional phase for me throughout the text. Like, I agree with you that it doesn't continue to invoke that type of I don't know if it's emotion or if it's just empathy. Like, I am I understand that like they're trying or that um, Klaus is trying to really illustrate basically the mundane and the repetitiveness of a small suburban lifestyle and how you know when you're when you've just graduated high school and you feel you feel like you've accomplished something but at the same time you also kind of realize that you've moved from this small pond to this big pond and then no one in that big pond really cares and you know I, I really think that it might have been in the way that you don't like it it kind of mirrors the way of their feelings more so just as teenagers and how Mm. like it's it's really setting the emotional stage of this is their life right now unless they do something about it and you know at the time 
Enid's really the yeah. only one who wants to do something about mm-hmm. it in a way. Mm-hmm. When she, even then, she's still kind of fighting it. Yeah. There's an interesting sense that neither girl quite knows what to do with their life mm-hmm. apart from what they're expected to do. But again, it's like, it's something that we are doing for this text, not yes. that it is doing for itself. Oh, 100%. They're sort of demonstrating their desire to rebel by rejecting the narrative of proceeding on to college, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, or dressing in acceptable modern-day fashions, or being grown women. (laughs) Heaven forbid. That was the one kind of part I did sort of enjoy, is their staunch refusal to be women in the way that women are expected to dress and look. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I felt like that actually works better in the film, personally. I do too, and I just thought it was... I don't know. I mean, far be it for me to say that I really needed a narrative here because I don't usually, but I just felt like there were all of these threads that never became anything. And because of the episodic nature of it, Klaus is free to just have them wander around, be cynical, say something cynical, move on without consequence in a way that I thought actually hampered the overall project of what he was trying to do, if that makes sense. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think he got in his own way by trying to focus on like pithy one-liners and anti-capitalist <laughs> critique and then you're left with really I, as i said off the top nothing to really hold on to yeah which is i think a good opportunity now to segue and talk about the film because the film does do things differently in that yes regard. yes okay so let's roll the trailer <laughs> what do you think you're doing Shut up that damn noise! Rock and roll, baby! Freedom of speech! <laughs> that guy rules! They can't believe we made it. We graduated high school. How totally amazing. I can't help but feel I had some small part in how you turned out. <sighs> Sometimes I think I might be going crazy from sexual frustration. You just hate every single guy in the face of the earth. That's not true. I just hate all these extroverted, pseudo-bohemian losers. You guys up for some reggae tonight? Do you have any other old records besides these? Seymour does. Who does? Oh, uh, him. He's the man with the records. Oh, what, are we in slow motion here? Come on, what are you, hypnotized? Have some more kids, why don't you? John Pehechan who? Gina Hassan who? I'm allowed to place one student from your graduating class for a full one-year scholarship, and I took the liberty of submitting your name. This could be a really great thing for you. When I have to take classes and stuff? (laughs) Well... So the film is directed by Terry Zigoff, and it's from 2001. So this is his first feature fiction film. Previously, he had done a documentary called Crumb from 1995, and that's about, like about comic Robert artist Crumb? R. Crumb. Oh, okay. Yep. And the other film that he had done is called Louis Blue, which is about an old-timey Chicago string band, Martin Bogan and the Armstrongs. So hmm. you can see the influence of that because he also co-wrote the script for this movie with Klaus. So it's very much an amalgamation of their two interests. So film has a relatively small cast. It's Thora Birch as Enid, and this is post-American Beauty A lot of people had highlighted her as one of the emotional centerpieces of that film. Like, they were surprised, who is this girl? She's the new It actress. And then, of course, 
what actually happened was that Scarlett Johansson (laughs) became the person that everybody talks about and she is Becky. We've got Steve Buscemi as a new character who's a bit of an amalgamation of several of the characters that the girls meet in the comic and he plays a character here called Seymour. We've got Brad Renfro, R.I.P. God, that sent me down the saddest Wikipedia spiral. (laughs) Right? Oh, he looks super familiar. Oh. Yep. So he plays Josh, who works at a convenience store. He's the boy that the girls simultaneously flirt and terrorize equally. And then another new character for the film is Eliana Douglas, and she plays Roberta Allsworth, and she's the art teacher that Enid has to engage with because in this version, Enid is forced to go to summer school for art class because she has not graduated high school. And it is actually Becky who is the one who is trying to sort of move on with her life by becoming an adult and getting an apartment and getting a job and so on. So opinions about the film? Well, I... (laughs) Was second time the charm, I know. (laughs) No, it was not. I will say I was kind of disappointed. I think that I definitely had a nostalgic, I don't know, fantasy of how I had watched it the first time. I'm not really sure. There were things that... I definitely appreciate it, but in comparison to the source material, I definitely think that it could have been handled. It's not that the movie is bad, and it's not that it was really interesting to me either. Like, I definitely stopped it several times, did some stuff, and then, like, came back, which is normally (laughs) not how I try and watch films. (laughs) Oh, is that literally how I watch every film? (laughs) Right? I'm like, oh, I'm kind of hungry, or oh, let's let's do this. And I'm like, I need to finish this. So I definitely appreciate, I think the casting was really well, really well done. And I appreciated some of the, just how some of the scenes were really set up and handled. But at the same time, the mood of the source material didn't reflect. (laughs) I mean, it does, because I mean, they're still extremely despondent. But like, I don't know, it, it seemed like there would have been more of an immersive feeling, and I didn't get that through the movie. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I feel like I would have loved this movie when I was 18. Mm-hmm. And at 36, it made me tired. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> These teens are emotionally draining. Yes. Honestly, so some of the plot differences that happen in that there is one um, in the in the film are that yeah so we've got Enid going to summer school to try to get her high school graduation in place and they also sort of spin out so in the comic they see a personal ad where a guy a guy's like oh we we saw each other once it was like an airport ride or something we saw each other once and you know one of those personal ads I was in a green sweater blah blah blah. Yeah, misconnection. Yeah, misconnection. That's it. So they respond to it and then they go and stalk the restaurant where they tell the guy to meet the girl and then they make fun of him right and it's awful in the comic but in the in the film it just spins out to be basically the entire b plot of the damn film yeah. and <laughs> i found nothing about that way of i just found nothing about enid's character i don't know because the other thing that happens in the in the film version is that at art school enid she forms a friendship with the guy who she traumatized with the missed connection thing. And then she ends up stealing, yeah. she ends up borrowing a piece of art from his house. That's actually a really racist ad for the company he works for, a former ad for the company he works for. And she passes it off as a found art project in her art class. Yeah. And she sort of snows her art teacher, but then everybody else is like, wow, this is actually just really racist. Yeah. 
And so I did kind of love that scene where the woman is like, well, this is bothering people. So we're just going to take yeah, it. Down. Yeah. <laughs> and then she takes the painting literally off the wall of the gallery. Yeah. And like, so it's a super racist image. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I feel like the film never really unpacks that. Yes, there's this whole thing about how Enid is just kind of being like edgy and I don't play by everybody's rules and I'm just like doing things and making fun of adults and making fun of adult respectability. And like, yes, as I say, she snows her teacher and her teacher's like, oh, you should go to art school. You're so smart. But I don't know what to say about this. There's all this it's stuff It's a in the shallow film. critique, it's right? It's a super shallow critique. It's a super shallow critique with a movie that has like one black person in it for like one and a half seconds to try to have this conversation about like representations of Jim Crow era America mm-hmm. and to do it so shallowly and so ineffectively. I was just kind of like, why is this here? What? Why? Well, I think it's so important that the director and the original writer wrote this screenplay, right? Like, this isn't somebody maybe misinterpreting the comic. No. This is the comic artist literally saying, this is my opportunity to extrapolate some of the concerns that I, (laughs) you know, wasn't really engaging with in the comic, Mm -hmm. but I can now really make it a subplot of this film. And it's worth noting, as part of that conversation, that Terry's wig off, he's part of that indie comics crowd. Yes. Like the reason he made that documentary about Crumb is at least in part because like that was the world he was imbued in. And I'm pretty sure if I'm not mistaken, he was the editor of the first collection that Spiegelman's Mouse was published in, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, really? And so like we've got these people who are just so intensely in this indie comics world. Yes. Like they are that world. They are that world. And which has often had quite a lot to say about anti-semitism in american culture but has not traditionally dealt with other kinds of oh yeah they're afraid to tackle racism Mm -hmm. typically i mean there is there is this weird sort of play with anti-semitism in both the comic and the film Mm -hmm. that again Mm -hmm. i feel like is just hanging there undealt with but when you've got this jim crow era portrait of a black dude in the middle of this film and you're not dealing with it Yeah, because the film almost says, you know what? That is something that we don't want to touch. We just want to make fun of the way that the art world would address it. Sure. Like, that's not our concern because that's too heavy or that's too weighty or that's not what we're interested in doing. We really just want to poke fun at how stupid artists are. You don't get to do that with that. (laughs) No, no. And I agree. Like, you know, you bring it up in the in the source material that there's no consequences for any of the actions of the Mm -hmm. characters, or I guess the main two characters. And it's painfully obvious in the movie because Enid's not even at the art show when that happens. And you're like, okay, well then what was the whole point? No, but ladies, she lost her scholarship. But she didn't uh, even really but she, Yeah, she, yeah, that was, exactly. yeah, it was very, I was like, wait, what? You know who gets all the consequences? Poor <laughs> Steve Buscemi. Yes. <laughs> like, he loses oh his job. He loses his relationship. Yes. Like, it's so, And then he's like, I'm not mad at you. I'm like, why are you not mad at her? Yeah. <sighs> I have some feelings. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so that scene also, <laughs> it's, I don't know. It's kind of like how I just thought of this comparison. And okay. we'll, we'll see how it goes over. Watching this... <laughs> Watching this is how I think the next generation will feel watching girls. 
Because, oh my god, yes! <laughs> because I feel like there's a lot of issues that we are adding importance to, which, like, I would like to give Klaus the credit, like, I would like to give him credit as wanting to approach these or, like, work them out. I don't know if that's... But you can't quite get there. Yeah, I can't really quite solidify that, but I'm gonna hope that's what he was going for. But, you know, it's... <sighs> Enid's character is very similar to, I can't even think of her name now, the main character of Girls, in the way that, like, they're so self-absorbed in the way that, like, I get that even now as an adult, you're like, okay, well, I want to make sure that I'm doing this for myself or, you know, this is what I want. Like, this is what's best for me or me and my insular family. But that's not how the world works. Like, there's something that needs to be explored in this. Mm. And it's... It's not. Another text that would be the idea behind the story, right? Sure. And you could argue that the fact that the film doesn't do it is what makes it such an iconic text for some people. Sure. Which is that mm-hmm. it's not playing into Hollywood fallacies about these girls learning a valuable life lesson. But it's also not satisfying. Not no. At all. There's nothing that and this movie is too <sighs> like basically two hours long. It's too it's too it's... long to be this unsatisfying, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> Yes. Is that, yeah. I literally, I watched the movie, like I watched part of the movie and then I like, had to do something and then I like watched some more movie and then I went and put my kid to bed and then I watched the rest of the movie and I was like, (laughs) you know what? Why is this movie still happening? Yeah. Yeah. Like, why is this movie not ended while I was off doing one of those? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I kept thinking like, okay, this will happen and I'll get some sort of satisfaction. And you're right. Far be it for me, especially as an artist, to tell someone how to do their art. But this is wrong, though. The- <laughs> this art was wrong. <laughs> There's just something that's not satisfying for me. And, you know, I, I don't need her to learn a lesson. But as we kind of touched on, the, the conversation or I guess the, the interaction that happens between her and Steve Buscemi closer to the end of the film it's so frustrating and so oh. flippant because basically this poor guy's whole life has been torn apart because she was bored and yeah. he confronts her and is like, yes, I know I'm pathetic. I know I'm, I'm a dork, but you know, like it's fine, whatever. I'm not going to blame you for it. And he says something about her obsession with Josh and she's like, well, I mean, you didn't like look through the rest of the book. And I'm like, okay, well, just because you have drawn pictures of Steve Buscemi doesn't mean that like you care about him. Like, uh, that means you're an artist who right? did life drawings. <laughs> you're still treating him as an object. And I'm like, he's not a play toy. So it was, I, I also mm. had to stop it there. <laughs> I wanted so badly for him to punch her in the mouth right then. Yes. Oh, wow. Right? Or Brenna. something. Joe, oh. she destroyed his life. Yes. She we- meanders into it. She first just makes it a little bit worse. Then she just completely <laughs> blows the whole thing up. And you're just yeah. like, why? And it's not like it was just his relationship. No, his job. Well, he's living with his mother now. He's and you're with like, his mother now. I feel like I've watched like rom coms about this. Yeah. With role reversals. And I'm just like, what? And so it's a strange. I, I guess what I'm also trying to get at is that maybe I would have appreciated it better had it be just had the randomness and like, you know, the like people come in and out of your lives feeling of the comics instead of instead of adding a two hour unsatisfying plot. Like, what was the point? 
Because you don't find anything out about her. Nope. You don't find anything out really about him nope. through their interactions. It's just like, wait, what? Like, why Why did this need to happen? This is such a weird issue for me because, as I mentioned off the top, I like plot. So the fact that the film <laughs> introduces something, like there are stakes here. People's lives are in ruined. play. And ruined. You know what? Like, it doesn't have to be a satisfying ending for me. Sure. Like, obviously, I'm going to enjoy it more. She had gotten some comeuppance or she had to learn something, but that's not what this film is doing. So that's okay. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. Here's the thing that frustrated me. The comics are all about these two girls. And it's about them and their relationship fracturing as they grow up Mm -hmm. and come of age. And they realize that their friendship was probably one of convenience that started in high school. And then they're growing apart and they're going in their own separate ways. Mm The film is arguably also still about that, but the introduction of Seymour as this all-encompassing character to frame all of Enid's insecurities, her wants, it makes the film less about Enid and Becky. And I didn't really realize how much it bothered me until I read Roger Ebert's four out of four star review for this film. How many stars? So he gave it a perfect score. No. What? Yeah. Oh. And a big part of what he praises is some of the things that I think we're struggling with, which is that it's got these sort of unlikable characters who meander through their life and it's not creatively satisfying, but he's praising that as, oh, it's risky because it's not falling into the Hollywood trap. Mm-hmm. Be that what it may. Mm-hmm. Put that to the side. I would say I'm bored. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm reading this review because part of me was like, I, I didn't connect to the film in the way I had hoped to. So I was looking at why is this film so beloved? Because if the comic is beloved, the movie is even more so for a bunch of other people. So this review, and I encourage people to check it out. I'll link to it in the show notes. The entire review is all about how much Ebert connects with the Steve Buscemi character. Of course. I was going to oh, say, I could have guessed cool. it. If we weren't a clean podcast, I would be swearing so much. (laughs) It has no connect. Like Scarlett Johansson is mentioned once in this. And the whole rest of the thing is about why is Enid attracted to this man? And one scene I especially like involves a party of Seymour's fellow record collectors. They meet to exchange arcane information and their conversations are like encryptions of the way most people talk. The event must seem strange to Enid, but see how she handles it. It's Seymour's oddness, his tactless honesty, his unapologetic aloneness that Enid responds to. He works like the homeopathic remedy for angst. His loneliness (laughs) drives out her own. Yes, all of that is true. This movie is not about Seymour. No, why is... Oh... (laughs) Oh my god, that is the most cishet white men got yes. a cishet white men review I've ever heard yes, in my life. Yes, yes. Oh. And I wonder again, is this so is this the problem with yes. the film yeah. too then? But it's also the problem with the comic, right? If the comic mm-hmm. isn't really about those girls either, it's about Klaus. And so we yes. have the same thing happening in the film. Okay, now one other thing <sighs> that I think is going to make both of you even more frustrated. Oh, great. <laughs> so Ebert knows the director, Terry Zigoff, and here's what he says. He looks a little like Buscemi and acts like a Buscemi character. Worn down, (sighs) dubious, ironic, resigned. So basically what has happened Mm -hmm. is that Enid is close and then Steve Buscemi's character is Zigoff. So they just, it's two white men who wrote themselves into this movie. (sighs) This movie is just about two old white men. You know, 
you know, (laughs) I think that's really, I think that is my issue. Like, I would have been okay. And I I guess, like, I don't really like girls, but I will give girls at least the... (laughs) Don't like girls. (laughs) I mean, I watched it, but I'm just saying. (sighs) At least it was... At least it's actually about the girls. Yes, it's actually about them. And regardless of how shallow or so ridiculous it gets, like, it is about them. And I think that, especially as a woman, I feel like it's very obvious to me that Becky and Enid are vessels through this entire, Mm -hmm. both through the comic and through the movie. Like, I don't feel like they have any agency Actually, the comic and the movie are too curated for me. If you're going to give me no Mm. plot, like, this is what it is, I just want to explore all of these things, that's fine. I mean, I can watch movies like that. I can read books like that. That's fine if that's what it's about. But when you're trying too hard to do that and in turn you make it so painfully self-indulgent yes very self-indulgent like that's the frustrating part you know when women interject themselves into their fan fiction they get called mary seuss but when middle-aged white guys do it they get academy award nominations oh yeah Yeah, and that's the thing this Mm -hmm. film was nominated for multiple awards for its screenplay Mm -hmm. which as an adaptation of the comic yeah it's actually pretty good Mm -hmm. for all the wrong reasons (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like yeah. this is the most YA text that we've read that is a secret not YA text. Yeah. Yeah. I think The Virgin Suicides was more a YA text than this. Yeah, at least that had something to say. Oh, anyway. Teenagers. All right. I don't know how much more we want to talk I about it, but I do think we should <laughs> I do think we should address the end because people oh. have varying interpretations about Enid disappearing in the mysterious bus in her Jackie that O'dress. goes to nowhere. Hmm. So some people have actually interpreted that that is Enid going off to commit Kit suicide. suicide yeah. And hmm. apparently, particularly in the film, Zigoff is confused why people would think that. That is apparently not the intention, but the author's intention is unimportant. So I'm curious, do either of you have any insight? I definitely didn't take it as that. No, me neither. I took it more as, <laughs> I mean, and maybe from my adult point of view, I took it as she was going to do whatever she wanted to do with no consequences. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, she saw something new, like, this whole time that we think she's obsessing over Josh or obsessing over her dad dating her stepmother or whether it's Steve Buscemi's character, you know, she's just kind of flittering around. Yeah, she's reacting to other people. Right. And then, you know, every time she's going to these situations, she passes Norman, who's sitting on the bus, and... The only reason she's really interested in him is because he's ignoring her. So I just took it as her, like, chasing after the next, like, thrill for her. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I sort of read the whole thing with the old guy on the bus as being like, (sighs) to me, that was indicative of how bad the girls are at reading other people. Like, because Mm -hmm. they don't actually care about what other people are really up to. They care about how they fit their narratives, right? Sure. And so, like, it's useful to the narrative to believe that this old guy has, like, dementia or alzheimer's or whatever and he's waiting for a bus that's never going to come i like interpreting that as like they've got all of that wrong the dude knew the bus was coming mm-hmm. he's, and he's gotten on it <laughs> you know what i mean like all through the text both the comic and the film we get these moments where the girls radically 
misread or uncharitably read other people Mm -hmm. for the benefit of their own storytelling and so I just see him as part of that so it never occurred to me to think that the bus wasn't real or that the bus was the bus to suicide town or whatever (laughs) bus is a metaphor it's super deep and philosophical come on ladies look as somebody who is going to school for symbolism, I am all about inserting symbolism into things. <laughs> like, how can I shoehorn this in? She loves a semiotic as much as the next gal. Yes, right? But <laughs> I just, I was like... <laughs> it, You're like, yeah, no. it was literally mm-hmm. like when you find out that, <laughs> that he's a ghost in Sixth Sense. In Sixth Sense. Ugh, Ooh. spoiler alert. Oh, I know. Sorry. <laughs> but I was just like, wait. Okay, I was like, this for real is not a ghost bus. This is ridiculous. And I was like, no, I can't. I'm not letting myself even think that. Yeah. Did you think it was a ghost bus, Joe? <laughs> no, to be honest, when you said ghost bus, I flash back to the scenes in the art class where Elena Douglas's character is praising that snooty uppity girl the tampon who's like, in the cup girl uh-huh. the ta- yeah and her wire hanger <laughs> sculpture piece and part of me was just like but are we not also doing that with this film and this comic where you're like yeah. oh it's a metaphor and it's really deep and you're kind of like mm, but this comic and this movie are actually not as deep as people give it credit I don't think for. they're as deep as their creators think they yes. are and that's always yes. that's yeah. always the worst possible outcome agreed which I just think is deeply ironic then because the whole thing, yeah. that's what they think they're doing. And then we're sitting here being like, well, guys, you missed yeah. the mark. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, the more we talk about it, the more I'm like, okay, well, why Like, why is it even named Ghost World? Like, let's think about all of the reasons it could be and, like, what are the, like, socio, mm-hmm. you know, symbols of that or, like, what exactly is that, like, alluding to? But it's just, like, I... Or we could just yeah. yeah. I don't want to do that. No, <laughs> sound fun. No, exactly. It it doesn't like it doesn't lend itself to any. I I agree with you, Joe. Like I know that we're <laughs> we are trying to make sense of it, and that's probably somebody just wants their art to be conversational. And it's I don't know. It just did not do it for me, and it kind of gave me a headache. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's what we have now spent you know a good seventy minutes talking about is just. I appreciate that this, both the comic and the film, works Mm -hmm, for people, and people have very strong, nostalgic opinions about it. This is aggressively not for me. Agreed. Mm -hmm. Same. (laughs) Ah, Hard same. Ah, Okay, well, let's let's move into some YA bingo and wrap this. I was going to say, let's wrap this (laughs) bingo. Let's put this Mm -hmm. to bed. So, bingo! Not a good bingo. Do you either of you have a YA bingo square for Ghost World? I do. Okay, Brenna. I had a bunch of like sort of slightly bitter and cynical ones. And for a while I was thinking about bringing back author cameo from the first card, but. (laughs) No. And given the fact that we have another John Green text coming up, we probably will have another author cameo, but I'm skipping it in favor of adding growing apart to our bingo card. Ah. Uh, That that is a good good one. one. I figure we'll hit it again like I don't know <laughs> next week the week after every week for the rest of our lives yes <laughs> okay Cece I think mine would be awkward sounding profanities oh like I don't know a better way to say like a better no, way to to name I wish that you had been here for the maze runner there is nothing that oh, annoys gosh. me more than fake swears it just right? grates on my last f- 
freaking nerve. <laughs> and I'm like, look, as someone who does curse a lot in my day-to-day life, and I know that I cursed a lot when I was a teenager, but I'm just like, don't curse just for the sake of cursing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes you sound dumb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. I don't even want to reopen this, but part of me is surprised that we've made it this long without addressing just how <sighs> baldly offensive the girls are desperate to be right? and how... Embarrassingly hollow it yeah. rings, particularly in our more, you know, PC social justice warrior sure. snowflake kind of world. I'll be honest, that part made me uncomfortable because yeah. I definitely ran with a crowd that was like offensive for the sake of offensiveness <laughs> in high school. And now I read it and I'm like, oh my God, it's like, you know, that animated GIF online, the person desperate for attention, and it's like a guy throwing a jug of milk on the ground and then falling over into it. <laughs> That's what that feels like to me now. That's a very good illustration for that. I'd love yeah. to just describe a gif on the radio. No. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I will contribute. What do I have? Acerbic wit. Oh, I think yes. Is nice. the one that I'm going to use. That may have to get subbed out at some point because I don't know how often we'll use it. But I'm thinking, again, John Green, I'm coming for you. Oh, yes. <laughs> Okay, so before we talk about where we're headed next, Cece, mm-hmm. if people want to follow you and your delightful self or maybe see some <laughs> of your artwork, how would they find you on the internet? So I am on Twitter at Calls in the Night. So actually, let me back up on Twitter. <laughs> I talk about um, Something Red, which is my dark fiction horror literature podcast that is under the Bloody Good Horror Network. I'm also on the Bloody Good Horror podcast, and that's at VG Horror. Mm-hmm. And my website for my art is ccstapleton.com. Yes. Awesome. And you are an amazing artist, so people should definitely check out. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> and it was great having you here, Cece. Yes, because, thank you yeah, both. I really appreciated your contributions and also all the times you agreed with me. That's okay. awesome. <laughs> so, you know, that's especially what I'm here for. <laughs> so if you want to get in touch with the show and tell us that we're super wrong about Ghost World and it's uh, hashtag the best ever, you can find us at hashtag HKHSpod. That'll catch both of us. If you want to yell at me personally, I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. Joe, where can they find you? I am at B. Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. And if you have something longer to send us, like a longer explanation of why we're wrong about Ghost World, you can send it to hkhspod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. So I was going to say we're switching gears, but we're also sort of returning to last Coming week's back, territory yeah. a little bit, because next week we're heading to Suzanne Collins' Juggernaut. The Hunger Games, just the first volume, folks, if you're reading along with us. I say just the first volume, but the ebook that I downloaded from the library is like 40,000 pages long. I've already pre-read this because I was excited to revisit this. And I'm not going to lie, Brenna, I think I'm going to fight you a lot because I still really enjoyed this. I don't hate it. I just, anyway, all right, fine. So anyway, that's <laughs> next week, Hunger Games. Uh, yes. And- and uh, get ready to hear Joe and I disagree because you never hear that Um, and until then I will see you on one of these 40,000 pages (laughs) and I will see you on this slightly over two hour screen also too long (laughs) bye bye (laughs) bye